cause us to draw close to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Scriptures for this morning pick up where the reading left off in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, referring to the the wise men, uh, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed by, uh, to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all. Uh, he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he'd heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a city called Nazareth, and that was, and, excuse me, that was, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. I want to do a quick overview of the the visit of the wise men. Uh, just a very traditional story. Most of you are aware of it and, and understand it. But you know, uh, the one thing is we don't know how many wise men there were. Uh, we always uh, look at most nativity sets as showing us three wise men coming from the idea of three gifts, uh, but there easily could have been more. And they came following a star. And they, they called it the star of the king of the Jews. And some people are, are taken back by this because they're saying, well, this is astrology and we're not supposed to follow astrology. You have to understand, these were not people who were Jews. These were not you know, people who were following Yahweh, Jehovah, uh, God. And God has a way of getting a hold of people in their own language, if you will, in order to pull them into His kingdom. And uh, people think if these were planets aligned uh, or some kind of thing that they were watching for. I am firmly convinced that it was a supernatural star that, that was in the horizon for them to follow. Uh, you think about it, they were following it by day and night, it says. 
so uh, I think that, that, that what God had done is, is He would provided for them the thing that they needed to see to come and fulfill His purpose. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, those men returned home. And they took with them the reality that there has been born a king of the Jews. And people say, you know, well, you know, wonder what impact that had. I believe that it's very possible that, 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 that it paved the way for when the gospel went out. Again, remember, it went much further than the Roman Empire. It went across to China. It went down into India. That maybe they were the ones that prepared the way for it to go there. Uh, We don't have any history to say that, but it looks like, to me, a very plausible thing. So the wise men, they traveled to Jerusalem. They followed the star of the king of the Jews. They were looking for the king of the Jews. Why did they end up in Jerusalem if they were following the star? Well, one of two things happened. Either the star was not shining specifically or it had disappeared temporarily. Uh, And if you think about it, where would you logically look for the king of the Jews? Well, the, the, the Jewish capital, if you will, the place where everything goes up to. You know Jerusalem was so important to the Hebrew people that it didn't matter where they were geographically around Jerusalem, and no matter how far they were away, they could be in Egypt, they could be in South America, they could be, it doesn't matter where they are, they, they, they say the word, the word Jerusalem, and they always say, and an Orthodox Jew still says it, we go, we're going up to Jerusalem. Whether they're coming from the south, the north, the west, the east, it's always going up to Jerusalem because it's the focal point for them of all that God had, had done in the sense of the temple and, and, and all of the things that happened there. It's, it's clearly God's city. And so... The wise men went to Jerusalem. I can't imagine, you know, how how they approached it as to deciding exactly who to to talk to initially. But where, you know, things seems logical. They go to the palace, and uh, the they go and they knock. On, I, I you know I don't know how you you know whatever. But they, you know they they they're in and they they're not talking to Herod directly at this point. They're announcing. And there's someone that's receiving their, their, them and saying, okay, what is your business? And they said, uh, we're here looking for the king of the Jews that's been born here in this area someplace. Certainly, you know, assuming that they would know exactly where. So they relay, whoever receives the, the wise men, they relay this to Herod. And Herod's reaction at this was that he was troubled. And this word troubled means really agitated, uh, made worried, you know, this, in a sense of frantic worry. Uh, he was very upset, very, very agitated. And it says all Jerusalem with him. Now, why would that be? Well, when Herod's agitated, everybody's agitated because he was totally unpredictable as to what he was going to do in his anger. He was notorious for taking out his enemies, just literally murdering them and their extended families, 
Uh, he, he murdered his own wife and two of her sons because they, he saw them as a threat to his throne. He murdered another son, again for the same reason. He murdered an, uh, at least one uncle and several other relatives, according to Josephus, the historian, and literally hundreds of children to, in order to secure his throne and keep it from uh, anybody that, that, that you know, he didn't want to, to, to have even close to it. Herod himself, there's a discussion as to how Jewish he was. Uh, some people call him, say he was half Jew. Uh, the thing is, is that he was of an Edomite ancestry who were proselytes. And he didn't practice the Jewish faith until he became king. And then he, made a, uh, he even made up his own genealogy for himself. So he looked good. Uh, but he, he didn't have any real personal relationship with God in, in a sense of a Jewish faith. And uh, he's, he's, just, he's there. He's an appointee in, in concert with Rome to rule over Jerusalem and Judea. And he likes where he's at. And he's going, not going to let anything in a fear. So when he hears that there's been a king of the Jews born in his area, he is troubled. He is agitated. He's really upset. And the thing that I, I noticed and I never really thought about before was when he asks the chief priests and the scribes in verse 4 about where this king would be born, he, he asks specifically where the Christ was to be born. The 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 it, it, The... Wiseman asked for the king of the Jews. He asked for the information about the Christ. He understood the Jewish anticipation of a Messiah and a Christ. I really believe he knew who he was looking for and who he didn't want to come to power due to get out of childhood, get out of infancy. Because there's no way there, you know, this would happen. You know, you know, he was going to stop it at the very, very beginning. So he asked the, the chief priests and the scribes, uh, and, and you know, where is the Christ to be born? They respond to him that he's to be born in, in Bethlehem. Uh, quoting out of, of uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So Herod goes back with the, with the, to meet with the disciples, uh, and he, or the disciples, the, the, the wise men, and he talks with them and he says, by the way, when did you first see the star? Now, you have to anticipate the, 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 the answer to this because it doesn't give it. You kind of got to read between the lines. You've got to think about travel at that time. It took months and months to go from the east to, to Jerusalem uh, on caravan trails, this type of thing. So the star had to... Uh, been uh, appeared to them several months before this situation, possibly much longer than that, depending on on what it took to get everything ready to come and to acknowledge it. But they gave him some kind of clock, you know, some kind of timing to work with, because he uses that to calculate when he decides to take the lives of all the male babies in Bethlehem. So he he puts out to them. His ploy, if you will, you know, his his 
well, kind of a clever deception here because he has no intention to worship him. But he says, when you find him, let me know so I can go worship him. They leave Herod. They head back towards Beth- they head towards Bethlehem. The star is visible again to them. And, and the reason why I think that this star had, simp- had disappeared for a short period of time was because how excited, verse 10 says, they were about seeing it again. They're really excited. It, and not just a little bit, I mean exceedingly great joy, excited. Look, the star! And at this point, it was very specific because they, went, they, they didn't have to look hard. They didn't have to go through the town asking, where might this be? It's, it appears that it led them right to the house. House? Yes, not the manger. To the house where Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were staying. Remember, Mary and Joseph had relatives, family ancestral ties to Bethlehem. And the fact that they, that they couldn't find or locate anybody, there wasn't time the night that Jesus was, was born. They went to the inn right, right off. And my wife is ready to do this now. Well, we'll put her in the mangers, into the stables. The best thing we can do right now. I'm sure within, uh, if not the next day, within a couple of days, Joseph had located family and were staying with them. That would have been the custom. Without any hesitation, the family, even if they were distant and never had met, would have taken him in. They go to the house, and it doesn't say they see the baby. It says they see the child. An implication of, of some kind of gap in age. Not a, a cradling baby, but someone who has grown a little at least. They fell down. It says they fell down and worshipped him. And then presented the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Three very specific gifts implying three very specific things. The gold, the kingship, the royalty the, uh, of, of, of Christ. The frankincense was what the priests used in their offerings. And it reflects the priesthood of Christ. And the myrrh is what is used to anoint someone in death and burial. And it reflects the death of Christ. Very expensive gifts. Very valuable. I believe that these things happened at least 40 days plus after the birth of Christ. My reason for that is because in Luke chapter 22, or chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, when Mary goes for the purification rite at the temple in Jerusalem, they offer, it says, either two turtle doves or two pigeons. They stayed within the law and offered two. That was the offering of someone who had very little. The offering, the standard offering, if you had the resources, was a lamb. She didn't offer, they didn't offer that. Why? Because they didn't have the resources for that. Had the wise men come, I'm convinced they would have used some of that to, to, to honor God and use and offer a lamb. So at least 40 days after the birth of Christ. But we have to be careful not to go too much further than that 
Because Herod dies in March of 4 B.C. So it's, it's, it's a very tight picture here of, of uh, figuring out when Jesus you know, was 30 years old, started his ministry, and all the things that go on in his death. Uh, we have a, a fairly short time frame. Because some people say, oh, that, that Jesus might have been two or three years old by this time or something. No, I think he was still an infant child. The reason why we get that idea of two years old comes from Herod and the reference of the star. We'll get to that in a minute. They found the child in a house. They fell down and worshiped, presented their gifts, and then warned, it says in verse 12, warned in a dream, do not return to Herod. They went home a different way. And uh, so that brings us to, to where we are in, 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 in today's verses, starting with verse 13. Uh, where the wise men are gone because they were warned by an angel, and now an angel of the Lord has, is warning Joseph, flee to Egypt. You, Mary, Jesus, you know, and, and the child, it says, Jesus, go, leave, go to Egypt, and uh, I'll tell you when to come back. Herod is coming to destroy your son. Joseph responds immediately. It says, He rose, took Mary and Jesus that night, and departed for Egypt. He didn't waste any time. Remained there until Herod died, fulfilling the prophecy in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, it's an interesting thing about the prophecy. I'm not going to get into detail about prophecy, but this is a prophecy that had a fulfilling in its time frame, uh, referring to things that had happened, but it also has a future tie very clearly uh, in, in the, the, the picture here of Jesus being called out of Egypt as well. So they're, they, they're out of the picture. They're out of the way for the moment. They're in safety. I want you to, to see, just again, it's one of those things to see and start to think about how God had orchestrated all of this. makes the next verse, a couple of verses, very hard to talk about. Because when the wise men didn't return, according to verse 16, Herod realizes that he's been tricked. And it says that he is, in, in the, the English Standard Version, it, uses, it says furious. But it's actually two words. He was exceedingly enraged. I guess furious would be a good way of, of saying that. But somehow the, the two other words seem to, to really emphasize. Exceedingly enraged. He was, it's like enraged beyond control. Out of control rage. He realizes he's been duped. Number one, he's, he's angry that, that he didn't realize that the wise men, you know, somehow deceived him and tricked him and got out of town without him figuring it out. And he has no idea which place to look for Jesus. Now, you would think, and this is the way I would think about it, you know, well, just sit down, calmly think this out. I bet you he could find him. He's got to have his ways. 
But he's so enraged. Do you have you ever do you know anybody or have experienced this yourself? I hope not. But where where you've got such a rage that you're out of control and you don't think, you just act, and you act totally out of uh, of this rage in such a way that that it makes no sense looking at it from the other side. He just says, "I'll kill them all." You got to understand, this was nothing to Herod to do this. He's done this before. I'll just kill them all. Well, how am I going to know? Well, when did the wise men say those, uh, that, that, that star appeared? And maybe he added a little bit to bake a safe cushion and said, two years and under. Well, that's what we'll do. And he sent his soldiers to massacre the male boy children, babies, under two years and under. Somebody say, well, I wonder how many kids that might be. Well, based on the population of Bethlehem at the time, based on birth rates and all the things that go in history that you can look at, between 12 and 20 children were probably murdered that night or that day. There's a prophecy that was written in Jeremiah 31.15 that was quoted here. Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel is a, 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 would be a term at this point for uh, the, the mothers of Israel weeping for their children. Now fulfilled in this event. You see, Herod was... was it, it didn't matter what it was. Anything that he believed that threatened his authority or his throne, he simply put an end to it. Without hesitation. The wife that he killed that had, and, and the two sons that he killed, it, it says by Josephus that it was his favorite wife. Well, you know, it just kind of scares you to think of how out of control this man was in his anger. And I, you start to look at this and you realize, at least for me, I, it was something that, 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 that became really obvious because of the way Herod approached this. When he asked the, the, the scribes and, and the, the chief priests where the Christ would be born and then determined to kill him, Herod is, is, is one of these people that just simply shakes his fist at God and says no. And I don't know how familiar you are with with uh, the Psalms, but in the book of Psalms, the the second Psalm, in a sense, is a description of this kind of thinking. Psalm two, verse one says, "Why do the nations rage? Express their anger and their you know." This is, again, an intense rage. And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In a sense, that was what Herod was doing. He was saying, I don't want to have anything to do with God and His boundaries and His rules and His cords. Nothing that would bind me the cords or the idea of, of, of 
thing, the hobbling a horse, keeping him from being able to run. Uh, Herod was in that category. But look at the response. This is like a four-act play every three verses. Act one, why are the kings so bold to even you know, shake their fist at God in a sense? And in verse four it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. And this idea of laughter here isn't a, a joyful laughter. It's a, 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 a laughter of, of mockery almost, like you foolish people. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I've already put my king in place. You can do whatever you want and would try to do whatever you want, but my king, this is written in the Psalms, my king is already in place. The plan has been written and it's already done as far as history is concerned, even though it's in the future. It's a done, it's a done deal. I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now we, we start the third act. We've gone from earth to heaven Still possibly the, the scene of heaven, but a different speaker. I will tell the, of the decree. The Lord said to me, now listen carefully to this. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Who is he talking? Who's the psalmist talking about here? He's talking about Jesus. So the Lord is, you know, said to me, you are my son. So who's speaking here? This, the son. And, and, and he says, I'll tell you the decree of God. This is what, God, what, what the Lord said to me. This is what God said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, you'll have absolute authority. No hands, ifs, or buts about it. So, God has already put it into, into effect. He's already set his king in place. You know, you know, Herod, you can shake your fist at God all you want. It's not going to do any good. And anybody else that wants to shake their fist at God, God is not going to be undone. His plan is not going to be thwarted. His church will prevail. I get so frustrated when I hear people say, if, the people, if, if something doesn't happen, this is going to be the last generation of the church. It's only going to be the last generation of the church in the sense of, of history if God brings history to an end because everyone that's going to be in the church is there because the gates of hell can't prevail against it. It may get, go up and down in its strength and its power and, its, and, and how it works, in the, but it will never be undone. In fact, the church lives eternally as the bride of Christ, so it will never be undone. It's set in motion as well. And, and so, you know, God's plan is there. Nothing is going to undo it. Jesus will have that absolute authority where every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. We're going to see him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, the last three verses takes us back to earth, if you will. And the psalmist actually offering us a summary in a sense of a warning. Taking this into consideration, all that we've just shared here, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned. 
O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. And then the final phrase, the final sentence, is in contrast to everything else. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. What a powerful way to conclude this. Jesus is an absolute authority. There will be a judgment that will come. It won't hesitate when it's time. It'll happen. But everyone who's taken refuge in Him has no fear. Because you realize that everyone that's done that is a child of God. And as a result, there is no condemnation. Verse 19 in chapter 2 of Matthew. Again, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. He says, it's okay to return to Israel. Those who are after your son, the child, Jesus, is they're dead. So this is after March of 4 B.C. And Joseph, again, being obedient, and he immediately responds. They start their way back. But Joseph makes an observation. It says in verse 22, and that is, is that Herod's son is ruling over Judea. You've got to think about this. Just the natural caution, the, just the prudent caution is there. But then he is warned anyway. And so he avoids Judea, goes to Galilee, and they take up ref, uh, their, their residence again in the city of Nazareth. Fulfilling what is, I consider, a, what's a general prophecy. It says, spoken of by the prophets, uh, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this is an interesting thing because you're not going to find that exact quote anywhere in the, in the Old Testament. But the root word for Nazarene and for Nazareth is a word called sprout. And it's not the same. It's, it's used by Isaiah to, to, in a reference to Christ, but, but the other ones are a different word when it says the branch and sprout you know, for, uh, of Jesse, this type of thing. In this one particular case, the idea of, of, of the general use of this word was that something that appears insignificant. Now, think about this. Nazareth, one person said, it's like podunk, you know, USA. You know, that's an old term. I was reading somebody's old book. But then somebody else called it Innsville. <laughs> it must have been somebody writing in the 50s. Uh, but, but the idea was it's... it's it's the, the place where the, 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 the pumpkin cart is. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I just didn't fall off the pumpkin cart. You know, type of thing. It, it's, it's out in, in the nowhere land. Nothing uh, that it would amount to anything would come from Nazareth. And it's word with the root of sprout, something insignificant. See, a sprout coming out of, up out of, a, of, uh, of the ground uh, next to all the trees just doesn't amount to much. But isn't that exactly what Jesus did? 
came into the world amongst all the the, the things that and and, and it concludes it, it confirms again what Isaiah said. He's not going to be much to look at. He's not going to stand out in the crowd. He's not going to have any apparent importance. So much so that he's even going to come from Nazareth, not Bethlehem where he was born, but Nazareth. He's a Nazarene. Insignificant. How do we know that that was a common way of looking at it? Think of what Nathaniel said when his, his when Philip tells him. We found the Messiah. The, we found the one we're looking for. You know, he's come from Nazareth. And and Nathaniel says, "No, <laughs> what? Can can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why would he say that? Well, it was a common saying. Nazareth just didn't have a reputation for producing anything important. It was a way station for the Roman army. It was uh, a crossroad place. It was it was nothing but but." a little spot in the, in, in the wilderness, in a sense, uh, for commerce and, and, and inn and, and a few other things to take care of Roman soldiers passing through. I just find it interesting that this, this picture of Jesus not standing out would even go as far as the, the Nazarene. It, it just amazes me because God takes the, 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 the things that are to the world insignificant, unimportant, and magnifies them and uses them to His glory. It's, it's, just, it's just a neat picture. This passage, though, is a, is a difficult passage for anybody uh, to work through or to preach through or to talk through. If you've, uh, anyone who has lost a small child and they read through it, it, it there is a sense of pain. And, and, and confusion at times as to why would God let this happen? Why this way? You know, and, and you know I can't answer that question because, again, you know my, my, my picture, I'm only seeing the tapestry from the underneath side and just the few threads that I am involved in and, and I can't see even the whole back of the tapestry. And even if I could, I wouldn't be able to identify probably anything. But boy, when we get to the other side and we see it from, from the side of heaven, from eternity, we're going to look at it and be in awe. But I was, I'd never read this before. Uh, uh, a pastor from uh, the Westminster Church of Christ in Westminster, Maryland, um, his name is Gary Pearson. And he said, and, and I'm, I'm just taking this from him, you know, because it's, it's really neat the way he came to it. We normally think of the first martyr of the church as Stephen. Why? Because it happened after Pentecost, after the church began. But he says, in a sense, these were martyrs for the church too, these children. And, and, and he says, these maybe you could look at as the first martyrs for the kingdom of God in the sense of the, the, the church as you consider what happened there. And then he made an interesting statement. You've got to understand, these children were not abandoned by God. They were not left behind 
they were sent ahead. Have you ever thought about it that way? A child, you know, we we always think of everything a child is going to miss. I think of my grand grandson dying uh, in in just a, a short time after he was born, and 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 uh, thinking all that he was going to miss. It was hard not to. When my son died at 21, it was hard not to think of all that wasn't that. <laughs> I have to say somewhat selfishly, I was going to miss. Uh, but, but that he was going to miss as well. And, and the marriage of his friends, the birth of their children, all these different things that I know he would have been so excited about and a part of in their lives. And, and, and every time something happened, I would say, oh, poor, you know, wait a minute. Poor Andy? Andy has gone ahead. He's not lagging behind. If anything, he's been spared the pain and suffering of this world in a fallen and a fallen world, he's a step ahead. I know that in my faith. I believe it. I always claim it when I do a funeral. They're ahead of us. They've gone ahead of us. Well, these babies weren't left behind either. They were sent ahead. And I really felt that was a powerful picture. And it helps to understand that even in the midst of God's plan, with something that seems so brutal and so harsh and so hard to understand... God creates a blessing in it anyway. And, and I know that, that I'm confident that heaven is a place where when you leave this earth, you enter in immediately. I do not believe in soul sleeping and other things that, that some other groups believe in. And when Jesus was calling Lazarus from the tomb four days after he had died, it says Jesus wept. He cried. It doesn't tell us exactly why he cried. I believe he cried because he was having to call Lazarus back from heaven. He was having to call Lazarus back from a place where he would not really, you know, it was kind of like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, Lazarus would die again. And I believe in the innocence of children, even though they're born with a sin nature, I still believe with confidence that when they die, they go to be with the Lord. And all I know is is that those mothers, as they wept, what they didn't realize is that, that they were in the presence of God, in the presence of the Lord. something else here too that I hadn't caught before. Mary. Well, let's put it this way. We start this way. Jesus did not escape what happened to these children. It was simply put off. Until the right time. Simply put off his death. You know, Mary ended up weeping at the death of her son, just as those mothers in in Bethlehem wept over the death of their sons, as she witnessed a merciless, cruel death. Again, fulfilling the prophecies out of Isaiah 
53, the way Christ would die on the, on the cross and where he would be buried and all the things that go with that. But especially Isaiah 53, 12. Let me read that to you. Well, let me read back a little bit further. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. Now, we're joint heirs. (laughs) We're the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet bore the sin of many and this is this is so important and makes intercession for the transgressors everything was past tense until it says he bore the sin of many and he makes it changes tense here he makes intercession for the transgressors he's still doing that he's still making intercession for us think of what it says in 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 in, in Hebrews uh you know, chapter uh, 7 and chapter 9, uh, they, they basically say that he continually intercedes on, the, on our behalf. As we are recognize our sin and we confess our sin, 1 John chapter 1 tells us he is faithful. He will, con- he will forgive us our sins and he restores us to all righteousness. He's interceding for us as our high priest. He is our king our High Priest, our Savior. He is the one who died for us on the cross. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. The more I read it, the more I'm amazed that there's no loose pieces. <laughs> it just it, It's an amazing, powerful picture. And when I think about the fact that He intercedes for me, I realize, oh, how I need this. Because if it was up to me, you know how many times I've said this, but but it's the truth. If any part of it's up to me, I'm doomed. But because it's in Christ, I can rest with confidence. There is no condemnation. There is salvation. Even joint heirs. I'm one of the many that He will be sharing it with. We come to communion. It's a time to think about exactly that, what He did for us. That there is no condemnation because of what He did for us, but the fact that we can come to Him, He is the one who intercedes for us constantly. I ask the ushers to come to uh, pass the communion out. Hold it until we've all been served, and we'll share it together.
because the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And He told the disciples at the supper He shared with them the night that He was arrested. He said, this is, this is My body broken for you. As often as you share it together, do it in remembrance of Me. A couple of wine at the end of the meal he took and put it into new perspective. A cup of blessing in every way you could possibly think about it as to what he was going to say next. 
He said, this is my blood poured out for you. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me until I come again. Father, we thank you. It seems like we're constantly saying that because words are inadequate to express the reality of, of what is in us. I would ask, Lord, that you would create in us that exceeding joy, greater than, than, than we can, can think of in the sense of, of just joy beyond joy at the reality of who you are, what you've done, and as a result, who we are in you. We are children of God, part of the kingdom of God. We have eternal life because of what you have done. The joy that that should bring in us should exceed all other kinds of joy known to man. And so often, Lord, I fall short of that. And even that I confess to you, knowing that as I do, you forgive me. Because you intercede on my behalf constantly. I need you every hour, Lord. Oh, how I need you. We worship you. We thank you. We ask that you would go with us. And as we go through the day realizing we need you, we also realize that everyone around us needs you. Cause us to be the witness and the testimony you want us to be at the point in time you need us to be that we might see your kingdom completed. In Jesus' name. Would you stand as we close?